0: All right, good morning. Welcome to the second week in our study of God's attributes. This morning we're going to be looking at God's acety. Uh First, a little bit of housekeeping. It was reported to me last week by Elder Vatanovitz that I had misspelled the word imminent on your lesson last week. So this is Wrong. I means about to happen. It's imminent, that's the way I spelled it. This is the way it should be. This means ubiquitous, God's ubiquity or his closeness. So that out of the way. Then let's do a little bit of review too. You know, we talked a little bit about God's incomprehensibility and his ineffability. How difficult it is to understand uh, and his ineffability. He's unspeakable we talked a little bit about metaphors and a type of metaphor known as an anthropomorphism. That's when we're attributing uh, characteristics to God like a fire, a rock, you know, stuff like that. And then we talked about anthropopathisms and that's where we're ascribing human affections or emotions to God. We talked about how that's God's way of accommodating himself to our understanding and making himself known. So that being said, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Our Father, we will be talking about your eternal self-existence this morning, a part of your character that is unfathomable to our minds. So we need you to help us, to speak to us, that you would strike us with a sense of awe in your being in this study this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, God's attributes are so complex that not even the most brilliant of biblical scholars could traverse the width and the breadth of the canyon of his being, his essence, his nature. And speaking of geography, today we'll be entering the Himalayas of biblical truth as we'll be looking at the first of God's incommunicable truths, unshared attributes. Um, By the way, did you like my metaphors? I use metaphor too. The canyon of his existence. The Himalayas. So hopefully, um, and that's the way the Bible speaks to us too. It helps us to understand. So transcendent means beyond or above the range of normal or merely human physical experience. So it refers to the aspect of God's nature and power which is beyond all physical laws. He transcends his creation, he's above it. So here's a philosophical question for you. If there was ever a time when nothing at all existed What could possibly exist now? Nothing. Out of nothing comes nothing. But if something exists now, if anything exists now, what does that tell us? It screams for creation by a self-existent eternal being. I stole that from R.C. Sproul, by the way. You should hear the way he tells that. I mean, it, it does. So, um, this is number one in your handout. Everything that we know of, including the universe, had a beginning. Everything is derived from something outside of itself except for God. He's not created. There was never a time when he was not. Eternally, he is. He has that power of being in and of himself, this is God's attribute of aseity The term aseity comes from the Latin phrase "a se, a se," okay, which means from self, from self, or from himself, from oneself. So I know aseity is not a common word in our vocabulary. So here's how many people remember it. Um, You may remember the Warner Brothers cartoon character, Rooster, Foghorn Leghorn. And you know, Foghorn Leghorn is always running around, I say, son, I say, that's a joke, I say, I say. If you can't remember, what was that attribute Mark was teaching about? Oh, I say, okay. So, this is number two in your handout. Aseity means from himselfness. Asseity designates a divine attribute by which God is whatever he is by his own self or of his own self. Since God is ase, he does not owe his existence. He doesn't owe his existence to anything or anyone outside of himself, nor does he need anything beyond himself to maintain his existence. He did not create himself or cause himself to be but he has alone of himself all that he has, while other things have their reality from him. He is underived from that which is finite, conditioned, limited, and changeable. And this is evident in how he created the world. He did not depend on some pre-existing matter to create the universe, but he created ex nihilo, out of nothing, which comes from something, a self-existence God, okay? So, if you've had children, you know, that often they might come up and ask you, Dad, where did God come from? And the answer to their question is, God had no origin. So when children ask, who made God? The clearest answer is that God never needed to be made because God was always there. God exists in a different way from us. We, his creatures, exist in a dependent, derived, finite, fragile way. But our maker exists in an eternal, self-sustaining, self-contained, self-sufficient, in need of nothing way. And if you've ever told a child that God was always there, you know the look that comes over their face, because it's probably a reflection of your own face when you try to think about someone who has no origin. And it's the kind of thought that we can really never enter into fully. The idea of a self-existent being is beyond us. So like a child, it's impossible for us to totally grasp God's self-existence, His aseity. This is number three in your handout. For us, every effect must have a cause, but God is not an effect. He has no beginning and therefore no prior cause. He is eternal. He always is. I crossed out was there just to give you a little clue. He always is. He has within himself the power of being. He requires no assistance from outside sources to continue to exist. So the the idea of self-existence is a lofty and awesome concept. Everything we perceive in our frame of reference is dependent and creaturely and we can't fully comprehend anything as self-existent. This is number four in your handout. Unlike us, creatures who are finite, God is infinite. As the infinite deity, any limitation must be ruled out of the question. Any limitation. Should he be limited in some way limited by time or space, limited in his power or his knowledge, limited by change or by divisible parts. That'll make more sense to you next week when we talk about simplicity. Limited by anything in creation, then no longer could he be infinite. His existence and well-being is not dependent or contingent upon any being or circumstance. He is the final and primary cause of all things. Therefore, there is no cause that precedes him. He is in need of nothing. He is a say. So, there are certain names of God that reveal his independence very vividly. Names like Alpha and Omega, King of Kings, Ancient of Days, Lord God Almighty, Everlasting God. Many more. Now, each of these names reveals that God is above all else and is not dependent in any way on anything outside his being. But undoubtedly, the name of God that reveals the greatness, glory, and independence, that's number five on your handout, independence, most clearly is the name Jehovah or Yahweh which are pronunciations or vocalizations of the Hebrew tetragrammaton YHWH, which by Jewish tradition is too holy to voice to speak, which means I am, or I am that I am. The word, the term tetragrammaton from Greek means four letters, so that's where we get Jehovah. So we see this in Exodus 3:13 to 15, where Moses meets God at the burning bush it says then Moses said to God behold I am going to the sons of Israel and I am going to say to and I will say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you now they may say to me what is his name what shall I say to them God said to Moses I am who I am and he said thus you shall say to the sons of Israel I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So when God revealed his name I am to Moses, there was no question that God's self-existence and self-sufficiency were not only true but that God's whole nature could be summarized that way. And as much as evangelical Christians disagree about many doctrines such about, like God's sovereignty or baptism, there is typically acceptance amongst creedal Christianity that God is independent, self-existent, and fully self-sufficient, that he is assay. And when I say creedal Christianity, I'm talking about like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, okay? And those are usually statements of orthodox belief that most most Christian churches adhere to. So God is not only independent in himself, but he also causes everything to depend on him. Aseity means that God is the explanation of all things, including himself. He does not need anything outside of himself to exist, be satisfied, be fulfilled, or to borrow from contemporary psychology, to be self-actualized. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This is number six on your handout. Aseity is arguably the most fundamental, arguably the most fundamental divine attribute. If there's any word in the English language that captures the otherness of God, it is this one. And by the way, of all the attributes in theological writing, the one that sends up chills to R.C. Sproul's spine the most is the doctrine of aseity, and it should you too. Um, Cornelius Van Til typically refers to aseity by the term self-contained. He says, basic to all the doctrines of Christian theism is that of the self-contained God and we must take the notion of the self-contained, self-sufficient God as the most basic notion, the most basic notion of all of our interpretive efforts. This is number seven on your handout. The terms self-contained, self existence self-sufficient, and independent are often used as synonyms for aseity. Herman Bavink, Bavink uh, the Dutch Reformed theologian says, and this is number eight on your handout, CT is commonly viewed as the first of the attributes. That's why we're teaching it first. Because it expresses the concept we need to designate God as God and to distinguish Him from all that is not God. All other attributes were derived from this doctrine of aseity. Because it's only when we've accepted that God is a say that we can understand the sense in which all of the other attributes of perfection are ascribed to God. Eleventh-century theologian Anselm asked a probing question. Is God the most perfect being? He asked whether God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. And he concluded if he is, then he must be the most perfect being conceivable. And this is number nine on your handout. If God is the most perfect being conceivable, then certain perfect making attributes or perfections must follow. Perfections like infinitude, simplicity, immutability, impassibility and timeless eternity, perfections that shield God from being crippled from limitations, okay? Perfections that ensure that he remains the most perfect, supreme, and glorious being. Now suppose, for example, that we describe God wrongly as all-powerful, all-knowing, but only very good, okay? In that case, God's degree of goodness is contingent, it's a contingency, subject to chance. It's a contingent fact about him. So because his present state of goodness could be better, God could not exist, ah say, because an outside factor will explain his current mutable or changeable state of being. Therefore, if God exists, ah say, he will be maximally perfect not just far better than we are, he must possess his attributes to the maximal degree. So at uh, last week's lesson, Pastor Tim wanted to know how we can understand what it means when Moses writes that God was grieved in Genesis 6.6. 6. By the way, Pastor Tim was just trying to throw something to me to slam dunk, but it's a little more complex than that, so... So in Genesis 6, 6, it says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So first, using the doctrine of aseity, we'll we'll determine what grieved doesn't mean. And this is number 10 on uh, your handout. Unlike us, God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself for emotional fulfillment or satisfaction as if he possessed a temper and feelings subject to voluntary oscillation which would make him a contingent being and not a se and therefore not God. So Aseity tells us that God cannot be a victim of his creation's disobedience. Do you get that? When we sin, we don't make God the victim, okay? Asseity tells us that he does not experience ongoing and fluctuating emotional states. That nothing in creation can alter him in such a way as to cause him to suffer any change or loss. And that's what grief is. Grief is an emotional response to loss, okay? Nothing can cause God loss. This is why asceti is such a a lofty concept. So then why does scripture say that? Why does scripture say grieved and what does it mean? This is number 11 on your handout. First we have called such descriptions such as grieving anthropopathisms, which are metaphors, okay? These are ascribing human passions to God so he you know, so we can understand him better. This is phenomenological language, okay? Which is the appearance of something, the way we see it, the way Moses saw it from his perspective. You should ask me sometime about my phenomenological language, about how my dad looked when he was getting ready to spank me, (laughs) okay? Um, So it's phenomenological, things as they appear to us. Not necessarily in this case as God really is. Such passages must be understood and interpreted within the deeper and broader revelation of who God is. Again, this is metaphorical language. So here we have the word. So here the word grieving is used to express God's holy hatred of sin. Okay. He's commendating himself to us and making himself known. We're lisping as John Calvin says. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Anybody have any questions so far? Yes. She wanted to know if that's the same as grieving the Holy Spirit. Okay. Exactly. Thank you. That's that's awesome. I mean, The Bible is full of this metaphorical type type language to communicate to us, okay? So maybe, I'm not gonna break that sentence down that you just made, but um, yes, Josh. I think our understanding of God um, in this concept is also something that's very unique in Christianity. You know, Al Mohler often makes the point that Christianity is not an honor religion, where we, God doesn't need us to defend him, Uh, whereas most other religions, that's not true, Um, you know, their gods rely on their people to defend them, and so as Christians, we have a place of, I think, great comfort in that God is not dependent on us to defend his honor. Yeah, you just stole the last half of the lesson, Josh, thank you. No, that's true. That's very true. Yes, Keith. Last week, I thought you laid out that, and again, you're doing it where we are just limited by human language. I guess I, I sometimes see the other side of it of we're, we're trying to defend God's language as well. Like, why can't we quote the scriptures and use this passionate language? I mean, this is very logical. It, it makes sense. I know it's true, but... It's almost like if we're reading to a child, we would we would read a verse that talked about passion language. Let me explain to you now um, what this doesn't mean. Which is good. We need to do that all the time. I almost feel like we have to overcorrect or overexplain God, where He did reveal Himself in passionate language in many passages, and sometimes I guess we just need to let that sit. Yeah, yeah I know. We. Uh... This is a complex thing, it's a complex issue. And one of the things that, you know, I'm kind of going into some future lessons, we have to look at the difference between didactic sections of scripture that tell us God is unchangeable and compare them to narrative passages of scripture that use phenomenological language, okay? and basically, this, that's what this doctrine of aseity does. Because what people have done, and we're gonna talk about them in a second, they're taking passages like that and say, God is mutable, God is passable, God is not ase. Well, what have you got then? You don't have much of a God. So, that's why we're, I understand Keith. This, this is very technical language. Uh, parsing out of what these things mean in a way as Tim said it does yes Tim Uh, I just forgot what I was (laughs) going (laughs) to ask isn't there attention that cannot be removed for example saying that Christ loved me and gave himself for me that Christ regards me as his bride and doesn't it, but you just used a metaphor right there, you're his bride, but doesn't it make it sterile, no, that's my concern, I'm not arguing that this is not true, we're going to talk about that, but I think it creates, you know, is like lesson six, okay, and God is love to the maximal degree, it's, this is what a sayety does, when we talk about God's love, it's perfect love, but when we're talking about things like God grieving, or God forgetting, or Moses uh, reminding God of his covenant. Um, Those are narrative portions of scripture that we have to relate to other didactic teaching parts of scripture. And we're gonna read some. Let's go ahead and get on with the lesson here. And we're not done with this subject. We're gonna be talking about these anthropopathisms and how they impact bad theology and what they do mean to us. So, aseity is the key that unlocks all the other attributes. Our intuitions uh, about, for example, God's immutability or his infinity or his love, for example, when considered by themselves, do not imply divine aseity. Rather, they flow from a logical prior understanding of God's aseity. So it is undeniable that aseity is of crucial importance to an orthodox understanding of God's nature. This is number 12 on your handout. Another aspect of God's aseity is that he does all things for his own sake and for his own glory, is all sufficient, has all life in himself, and is independent in all his attributes and perfections, including his will and his decrees. His will and his decrees. God is independent in his intellect, Romans 1134 34 to 35. He's independent in his will. You can look at verses like Daniel 4, 35, or Ephesians 1, 5. He's independent in his counsel. You can look at Verses like Psalm 33, 11 or Isaiah 46, 10. He's independent in his love, in his power and so forth. He's independent, okay? So divine aseity means that while creation is utterly dependent upon God, the dependence is not symmetrical. God does not depend on creation in any way. There are no needs or even desires that are fulfilled in the act of creation or in God's ensuing relationship with creation. It's not just that God does not need the creation for anything. God could not need the creation for anything. God doesn't need anything because he owns it all. For example, in uh, Job 44 verse 11, God says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Or from Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12. It says, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine or in Acts 17, verses 22 to 25, which Tim preached on a month or two ago, where it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, Therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything." So here Paul was teaching them and us that we cannot and must not speak of God and speak of creatures if they belonged to the same category of being, as if God was a larger version of ourselves. God's self-existence, as a deity is manifest in his thought. He doesn't ever learn anything as we see in Romans 11, 33 to 34. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how inscrutable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for who has known the mind of the lord or who has become his counselor god's aseity and his self-existence is manifest in his will which we see in romans 9:18 he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills you will say to me then why does he still find fault For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Or we can see in Ephesians 1, uh, 7-10, which says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. God does not lack satisfaction in relationships as we do. While God is essentially one in essence, one in nature, one in being, Yet, within the triunity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is perfect personal fellowship. Um, God did not create man because of lack in his eternal existence, but rather so that his glory might be displayed. Displayed glory, which, by the way, does not require a response He's not up there waiting. Gee, I I hope they see how glorious I am. Okay, he doesn't expect a response. He's just manifesting. He's revealing himself, and it is glorious. When we understand why God created us, then we can understand what sin is. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, short of the glory of God. Sin is... um, It's the pursuit of self-satisfaction outside of Him, falling short of the glory of God. And it will also allow you to understand why He forgives us, to display His glory. 1 John 2.12 says, "'I am writing to you, little children, "'because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake.'" What does for His name's sake mean? It means for His glory, okay? So he's he's doing things for his glory. Number 13 on your handout, um, the salvation of sinners does not add to God's great glory. Salvation of sinners reveals, it reveals the wonders of his grace and glory, but salvation of sinners cannot increase God's glory. God needs no support. The gospel depends on a God who doesn't depend on you. The picture of a nervous God falling all over men to win their favor is not a pleasant picture. Yet if we look at uh, a lot of the popular evangelical conception of God, that's often what we see. This is number 14 on your handout. If God is say, then he has the resources, the resources within himself to carry out his purposes for history. His eternal plan does not depend on creatures for its formulation or implementation. God does not need worshipers, nor does God need helpers to make him glorious. So if God is not independent of us, he is not worthy, qualified, or able to save us, or let, uh, let alone to receive worship and praise. As Michael Horton says, If God is not a say, he may be a God like us, but he is not a God better than us. He may be God in our world, but he is not a God distinct from our world. If God were not free from creation, we might pray for him, but not to him. Okay, so there's a couple dangers that we should avoid here. First, we could conclude that we don't matter to God if he doesn't need us. And the second danger that we should avoid is we could also conclude that God is not relational if he is independent of us. But both of these conclusions would be wrong. While God does not need us and is in no way obligated to enter into re- relationship with us, he created us in his image and made us to have fellowship with him. We matter because God determined that we would be meaningful. And even when sin ruined and destroyed our fellowship and access to him in Genesis 3, he voluntarily entered into a saving covenant relationship with us, even though he was in no way obligated to save us. God has every right to condemn us for all eternity, but as Matthew 25, 41 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God has emotion, okay? We're not saying that. We're just saying God can't experience loss. That's that's one of the main lessons. But God does love us deeply, more deeply. God's perfection of love is to be mind-blowing, okay? He loved us even because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive. So let's talk about how this relates to the Trinity. First let me say that if God is self-sufficient then he is also self-divine since he didn't receive deity from outside of himself. So before our divine God ever created the universe The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had perfect communion with one another as the one undivided Godhead with one divine nature. And we see that perfect communion, for example, in John 17, 24, where Jesus says, I desire that they may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the perfect communion of the Trinity. So, this is number 15 on your handout. The divine nature may be defined as the essence, property, being, or attributes of godness manifest equally in the Holy Spirit. seity or self-existence, and all the other divine attributes belong to the one divine essence common to all the persons of the Trinity and therefore it is the triune God who is self-existent, and not one person in distinction from the others. And we're gonna really dive into that concept next week when we talk about the attribute of divine simplicity. How does one God relate to the Trinity, okay? So there's one nature, one God, but three persons. Augustine allegedly wrote that to deny the Trinity is to risk losing one's salvation, while to understand the Trinity is to risk losing one's mind. So, and there's a lot of truth to that. This is number 16 on your handout. The Father is assay, Jesus is assay, and the Holy Spirit is assay. And yet, there are not three assays, but one assay. The assistance on the Asseity of the Son is the foundation of the whole Christian faith and the earliest creeds. And by the way, that's why these creeds were written. That's why these attributes are written, to protect who Christ is, okay? Now, it, I don't mean that they possess the quality of a aseity independently of each other because that would imply tritheism, three gods. And I think, unfortunately, we have a, a tendency to often talk about God as if, there were three gods, not one God, okay? Each person of the Godhead is fully God, but God is one God, says the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. So each person has the entire fullness of God's being in himself. And because each person is fully God, they share the equality of aseity in one divine essence. And we see Jesus' deity for example, in John 5.26, where it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. I mean, that's kind of our definition of aseity. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, have a Jesus is not God, he is a created being doctrine, okay? That's an ancient history known as Arianism, which by the Nicene, which is why the Nicene Creed was written to combat Arianism. Jehovah's Witnesses miss the implication of John 5:26, which we just read, as to the identity of Christ and his divine nature, okay? Self-existence means having no beginning, and the Son's possession Of this attribute means the Son has no beginning as well. Many heretical theologians, including Jacob Arminius, for whom Arminianism is named, thought only the Father possessed the quality of aseity, and that the Son and Spirit were created and not autotheos. That's a technical term meaning divine from himself. Jesus is divine from himself, okay? Again, the doctrine of, divinity, of the divinity and the seity of the Son of God is the foundation of the earliest creeds because the Son is the one way to know God truly. Only He reveals the Father. And this is number 17 on your handout. In the Trinity, and we're, we're going to talk about this concept here a lot more as we go along. There is no ontological subordination. There's no subordination and being. Ontology is the philosophical study of the nature of being from Greek, ontos, which means being. There's only economic subordination of their work in redemptive history, okay? Where we see the incarnation of the son where he's um, clearly subordinate to the father's will. So we see in the Gospel of John in 858, when Jesus is debating the Jewish leadership, regarding the lineage of Israel dating back to Abraham. And Jesus said to that group of Jewish friends, before Abraham was, I am. And they were absolutely scandalized when he did it because they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew he was claiming to be God, that he was claiming to exist before Abraham, even though he was only 30 years old. Abraham had lived 2,000 years before, and this person is standing in front of them saying, I was around before Abraham was because I'm God. I am. By the use of I am, Jesus is not portraying himself as another God, but the one and same God of the Jews. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of creation. I am uncaused. I am self sufficient. I am, I'll say. I am existence in itself. Everything exists because of me. I am the source and sustainer of all life. As John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, let's talk about errors. First, it's logical to assume that you either believe in a self-existent God or a self-existent universe. Only the Bible teaches that the universe is created and controlled by a personal God who is asse, not dependent on the world in any way. The problem with denying God's aseity is that you create a situation where God becomes dependent on his creation. That's why we have to tell you what the word grieved means, okay? God cannot suffer loss from his creation then he's then no longer able to rule sovereignly because his every decision will be contingent upon that relationship, opening him up to manipulation. Indeed, then his very existence would depend on his creation. So if God is independent and self-sufficient, then it is not possible for us to influence God to do what we want. It means that God knows all things from eternity and he doesn't look into the future to see who will do what in order for him to then make his decision based on what he sees. God's independence means that he does not consider what someone might do in a certain time and place and then make his choice based on that foreseen knowledge. That would violate God's aseity because it would mean that his choices are contingent On the choices of others. Contemporary theology often in an attempt to make God more relational turns the Creator into the creature where God becomes just as dependent on us as we are on Him. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy to believe that we are necessary to, to God but the truth is God is not greater for our being nor would He be less if we didn't exist. Um, So in theology, endless mistakes result from supposing that the conditions, bounds, and limits of our finite existence apply to God. J.A. Packer says, it is vital for our spiritual health to believe that God is great and grasping the truth of his aseity is the first step in the road to doing this. If we can think of anything, anything that would limit God then it would not be true of God. A needy God is not a perfect God, and therefore no God at all. We can be assured that if God is self-existent, that when we go to Him in prayer, we're at the source of life. And since God is the source of life, He is the only one that has the right or ability to offer eternal life. Eternal life is a commodity which God controls. And this should help us with the doctrines of election and predestination. He controls all eternity. His will is what will be. He's the potter, we are the clay. Asseity shows us that salvation is by grace. We see that in election by the Father, the atoning work of Christ, and the illumination of our minds by the Holy Spirit. This is number 18 on your handout. The gospel depends on a God who does not depend on you. What this means for us as believers is nothing short of amazing. While God does not need us, he has given us the privilege of being his. And our response to the doctrine of the aseity of God should be complete awe, a sense of utter dependence, a sense of deep humility, and a sense of ultimate gratitude. And as Romans 11:36 says, "For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And I might have time for one quick question. Yes. I don't know if this is uh, quick. <laughs> um, so how do we reconcile the idea of um, phenomenal language like grieving with Christ weeping? I mean, we know okay, okay, Jesus wept. Okay, when Webb. we get to the doctrine of impassibility one of the things you're going to learn is Christ became incarnate so that he could weep, so that he could grieve, so that he could suffer on the cross. That's how you reconcile it. Christ became incarnate so that a divine nature, a divine person could take on the nature of a human person to represent us perfectly. Christ did suffer. Christ did weep. That's why Christ became incarnate, and we're going to go get into that more, but I think we're real out of time here, so good question. That was good. (laughs) I like the answer. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time to contemplate who you are, and we just pray that your transcendent majesty will be on our minds today, especially now as we come to you in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.